Although, I've seen some scripts I know the words weren't spelled right. There was hardly any commas in it at all. So I don't think that's too important. Hey, you want to get on the train here, or you want to ruin another take, huh? It's too cerebral. We're trying to make a movie here, not a film. Man, I don't drop character till I've done a DVD commentary. You want to eat the writer? Be my guest. That will leave you to explain how else your character is supposed to get to Bremen. Welcome to another edition of the It Modcast Chatcast. My name is Billy Das, the indie dork. Uh, alongside of me tonight is my co-host, Brad Gillickson, mouth dork. How are you tonight, sir? This feels weird, Billy. <laughs> I'm also experiencing great deals of emotion. You're the host. I am the host. Uh, so who are we talking to tonight? We're talking to Crispin Glover. Wait, ah. Crispin Glover? I cannot believe it. I, this is uh, <laughs> astonishing to me. Obviously, I'm a big fan of him as an actor, but I also greatly admire him as a cultural artist, a philosopher, somebody who is confronting the status quo in his art on a daily basis. I am all about him as an artist. I think if you had told me this morning that I was going to have a conversation with Crispin Glover, I would, I would have, have stopped you there. You're lying. Yeah, give me a break. That's not going to happen. Uh, about political philosophy, uh, corporate culture, and its impact on the entertainment industry, and maybe the prospects for the survival of the human race. I mean, our conversation like, really justifiably went quite a few places. I really enjoyed this. This was a great conversation. I am really excited to go to the Chattanooga Film Festival this weekend on Friday, April 12th. Crispin will be showing his Crispin Hellion Glover big slideshow. And part of that presentation is his film, It Is Fine, Everything Is Fine, for 25 bucks. That's all you got to do, $25. You can experience this. And, I, you know, I'm, I'm eager eager to partake in it. Um, and I really wish we could have talked to him after having experienced the film, mm-hmm. uh, but that doesn't hinder us with this conversation. You and, know, but yeah. that's the interesting thing about this particular film is that he really only does it as a roadshow. If you want to see it, you have to uh, go to his website, crispinglover.com, uh, sign up for the newsletter, and when he schedules a roadshow date for it, he'll push out notices to folks on the newsletter. So I haven't seen the film yet, you haven't seen the film yet, but I'm telling you what, after you listen to this conversation, I don't know anything about the film beyond what I started out sort of loosely knowing about the, the plot of it and what goes on in it, but the philosophy of the stuff going on in the background, man, I feel like i got to see this movie. Agreed 100%. And the fact that this film is based off of a screenplay written by Stephen C. Stewart, uh, a man who is no longer with us, but who was determined to get out his emotional experience as somebody suffering from cerebral palsy, it's it's a powerful idea. I agree. And Crispin feels very strongly about the material and what he is trying to say about where we are today as a society and where art is within the corporate culture. I I find particularly fascinating about this is Stephen's desire to tell his own story as sort of the villain of his story and give him a chance to act that out. And, you know, in the course of our conversation with Crispin, we get into this idea of how people are allowed to depict their own stories. And... I think that what Stephen experienced in the course of his life is obviously formative on him as an artist and as a, as a human being. And this clearly is impacting what he's meaning to do. I think it's very interesting that Crispin Glover has taken on like the, the, the role of shepherding this out and going out and telling this story and, and really uh, carrying a lot of water for it. Yeah, sure. And if there's anything that ITMOD responds positively towards, it is passion. And listening to this conversation, you will totally see that Crispin Glover is one passionate filmmaker. And he cares greatly for how his art is being received through the media and through his audiences. And he wants to have a conversation with both. Which is what makes the Chattanooga Film Festival such an amazing opportunity. Um, I love the film festival. I know that Brad loves the film festival, but you know it's events like this where you get a chance to meet folks who are passionate about their art, 
interested in showcasing their performances and talking a little bit about the work that went into them and contextualizing them, I, th- I think is an opportunity that you really can't pass up. So let's get into the conversation and we'll meet you back on the flip side here. All right, here we go. We are here today with Crispin Glover, uh, and we're here to talk about his film, It's Fine, Everything is Fine, uh, and his roadshow tour uh, that he has been engaged in for, it seems like, some time now. Uh, And so, number one, welcome along to the podcast. Thank you very much for coming on. Thank you for having me. And I think my first question uh, really is, uh, you know, this movie seems like such a personal choice for you. Um, and you, you must have some passion to have stayed with it for such a long time and to continue to tour with it. Uh, so I was hoping that we could just dive right into what has compelled you to take this route with this movie. Well, uh, you, 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 normally I, um, I, I show two films. It isn't just one film. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a part one of what will be a trilogy called What Is It? And uh, It Is Fine, Everything Is Fine is part two of what will be uh, a trilogy. And uh, I started shooting What Is It? Uh, in 1996. Oh, wow. And uh, then I, uh, I had read Stephen C. Stewart's screenplay, which is... Uh, what uh, is the movie uh, It Is Fine, Everything Is Fine. Uh, I'd read his screenplay way back in 1986. Steve had been born with a severe case of cerebral palsy, uh, and when he was in his early 20s, his mother died, and he was put into a nursing home where um, it was difficult to understand his words sometimes. Uh and the people that were taking care of him in the nursing home, he did not want to be there. And they would derisively call him an MR, a mental retard. Oh, man. Uh, so the decade he was in that nursing home, I, the emotional turmoil he must have gone through, I can't even begin to imagine. But he, he did get out of the nursing home, and he wrote this screenplay in the style of the 1970s TV murder mystery movie of the week, uh, <laughs> wherein he's the bad guy. And um, Steve, Steve, like I said, had a severe case of cerebral palsy. And if you think about it, if you see a corporately funded and distributed film and there happens to be a character that has a disability in it, um, if that character is played by somebody with a disability, which is pretty unlikely in a corporately funded and distributed film, uh, whether they are or not played by somebody with a disability, the um, the likelihood is that the character with the disability will uh, be a uh, benefactor to society, hmm. and of course, there's nothing. <laughs> excuse me. There's nothing wrong with that. There are plenty of uh, people with disabilities that are benefactors to society. But Steve uh, talked about it, uh, wrote about it. Uh, he um, he was a person with a disability emphasis on person who had dark thoughts and he wanted to play a character with dark thoughts. And, uh, that's, that's something that happens in, in the film. I had incorporated Steve into what is part one of the trilogy, uh, which, uh, again, I started shooting part one in 1996 and it was going to be a short film to promote what will eventually now be part three of the trilogy when I make that one. And, uh, Steve, um, well, I incorporated Steve into what is it as I was turning it into a feature film, realizing I could make his screenplay into a sequel. There were, there were aspects in what is it that had been influenced by Steve's screenplay really without me even thinking about it. What is it is um, most of the actors in the film have Down syndrome. But the film is not about Down syndrome at all. What it really is is my psychological reaction to the corporate constraints that have happened in the last 30 or more years of filmmaking, where anything that can possibly make an audience member uncomfortable is necessarily excised, or that film will not be corporately funded or distributed. And I think that's a very damaging thing, because it's that moment when an audience member sits back in the chair, looks up at the screen, and thinks to themselves, is this right what I'm watching? Is this wrong what I'm watching? Should I be here? Should the filmmaker have done this? 
What is it? And that's the title of the film. What is it that's taboo in the culture? Mm. What does it mean when the taboo has been ubiquitously excised? I think it's very damaging uh, to ubiquitously excise taboo because it's those moments when people are asking questions that genuine education happens. The etymological meaning of the word education, the breakdown of it is to learn from within and to uh, ubiquitously excise the possibility of uh, people learning from within, well, it ends up becoming really the opposite of uh, education. What is the opposite of education? It's propaganda. And that's what's been happening in our corporately funded and distributed uh, film situation. And with Stephen's screenplay, when you read it, you know, it obviously feeds into what you're interested about, what you were starting with, what is it, and feeding it into this new film, and then assuming it'll it'll carry over into your third movie. But Stephen left us in 2001. He passed away, and you are still the shepherd for his story. What does it mean for you to be, you know, the person still carrying his story out there? Well, um, I, um, I, I co-directed the film and I, uh, I co-edited the film. I funded the film. Uh, and yet I feel every bit as, uh, possessive of the film as I do of my first film of what is it? Uh, and yet, yes, if Steve saw the film, I have no doubt he would, He'd look at it and say, "This is this is what what he wrote." He he was operating in the fashion of a um, they used to call it like a folk artist. Now they they tend toward calling it outsider artist. But he was working properly in the realm of a of a of a, of a proper artist. Um, there are psychological underpinnings uh, that I'm not necessarily sure what and what he was not aware of uh, when he was writing it. Mm. But that's, that's okay. That's part of really working in a, a, strong, uh, a strong way as a, as a proper artist, whether somebody's trained or not trained. Steve certainly is not trained in the realm, but he was working in that way. And that, to me, is really valuable and fascinating, particularly somebody that was in a very... The film's not a documentary, it's, it's a fantasy, but it is a documentation of this very particular person's um, story that he wrote for himself to act out. And that's, that's really a very unusual thing. Uh, when the whole trilogy is done, the best film in the trilogy will be this film. It is fine. Everything is fine. Mm. But not only that, I feel like it's quite plausible it will be the best film I'll have anything to do with in my whole career. Mm. Um, there's just something about the, the psychological underpinnings of it that are really beautiful. And, I, you know, I always, like, I'm working on a new film now. I'm, I'm getting closer with the film I've been working on for, I've been shooting every year for the past five years, a uh, production segment of the film I've been making another feature film. This one is not part three of the trilogy. It's something that my father and I are acting in together for the first time. Oh, wow. Uh, he, and I, he and I had never acted together before, and my father's been an actor since before I was born. So, um, you know, I always am looking to make my production value better and my stories uh, better. And, you know, you always want to improve. Um, better is a strange way to put it, but you, <laughs> sure. always, you know, you, right. always, you always want to, you always want to, um, some, somehow be putting new thought processes or, or, or realizations into the, into the film. And, uh, Yet at the same time, the thing about Steve's movie is just uh, he it, it, it's, an, it's an unusual discovery. Uh, I don't know how many times in my life I will come across upon a story uh, and a person of that nature uh, 
I don't I don't know that I will again. It's, anything's possible. Hmm. But, uh, I mean, it's, it's a little bit difficult to describe. It's part of why it's a film. It has to be has to be seen to under, be understood. There's a very strong production value in it as well. well it's all shot on very beautiful sets. That's a... That's it was a, shot on 16... It was shot on 16-millimeter negative yeah, and then that's that's cool. blown up through a digital intermediate to a 35-millimeter print. Oh, oh wow. actually, we will, be show, we will be showing the digital, uh, but it was captured uh, on, on film. It's a hell of a statement uh, to say. No, I, I just want to make it clear that uh, when I say that, normally I show it as a 35-millimeter print, because, but this interview... People might hear it in other realms, sure, but, sure. Uh, specifically for the Chattanooga, Chattanooga Film Festival, and that's uh, that's they they have a um, specific uh, venue that was uh, equipped uh, not not with thirty five but with digital. Right, right, understandable. Uh, it, you know, Crispin, that's a heck of a, a statement or a realization to come to that you know, this film is probably the best thing that you have ever done creatively. Um, but you are still compelled to follow it up with, uh, uh, I I don't know that other people will necessarily feel like that. Mm -hmm. I I would say most, most people wouldn't feel like that. I feel like that for a lot of different reasons, but I, uh, you know, I, I know, I, you know, I know what more people do and don't relate to, although I really do get very, very positive, uh, feedback about this film, but, it, you know, it's, uh, it's also not the people that come to my shows generally are looking for something unusual. If I were to have something that was a, a wider release uh, type of movie, uh, you know, or, or if this was was targeted as a wider release, uh, but it wasn't. It never it never was targeted as a re- wider release. It was always targeted exactly as it is. I knew I would tour with it as I have with with what is it? Uh, it's a very particular film, and uh, luckily, it's over the years as I've done it, it's it's found a, a, a proper audience for it. I, uh, you know, I'm very compelled by your description of the philosophy behind your approach to the trilogy about uh, telling honest stories that are are true to the people who want to tell them, free of of limitation. I, I think that that's very interesting, and I th- I think when you're looking to engage your viewers, they must then have thoughts about the movie that that they've seen. Do you find? taking such a personal approach to touring and, and rolling with the movie that you become invested in what their reactions are? Or is that as much a part of the journey for you to see how people take in the film? Well, I've, I've been touring with what is it since 2015 and with it is fine. Everything is fine. Um, since 2017. Mm-hmm. So that's uh, four, 14 years of touring for, one and uh, 12 for the other. Uh, This is a long time to get reactions and and questions. I always have a, I perform a live show before the, each of the films. There's uh, two different live shows that I perform, which can each consist of eight different books that I've reworked from older books from the 1800s. And I dramatically narrate these books as uh, slides are projected behind me, which they're profusely illustrated and the stories uh, uh, have to have the illustrations. The illustrations are part of the stories mm-hmm. essentially. So there's an hour long live performance. Then the feature films uh, are 72 or 74 minutes. Steve's film is 74 minutes long. So it's a, a feature, but it's a, a rapid feature. And then uh, I have a Q and a that goes for an hour and a half normally. Oh my and gosh. then the book signing, then there's a book signing after that. So I've had a lot of dialogue over the years, and uh, I generally know what kind of questions people are going to be asking. There are certain things that I clarify. I, what is it in particular, which is not the one I'll be showing in Chattanooga, but that one, that one I get a lot of, I get more aggressive kind of questioning about it. Uh, mm-hmm. Both of the films have controversial aspects to them, and people 
uh, are not necessarily used to the kind of subject matter or thematic elements that are in the films. Uh, but uh, what is it tends to getting people more uh, upset, for lack of a better word? Sometimes people get upset with uh, Steve's film, but lesser so uh, than with uh, what is it. Uh, but what I'm getting at is that I, I'm pretty uh, used to what comes from the films. I mean, every once in a while, there's some you know new question or, or something. Uh, but I try to I pr- try to put it in context because both of the films are well. What is it in particular? Like I said before, is is a reactive film to corporate constraints. Mm-hmm. So uh, it, it it pushes into areas that purposefully are, well, not corporately friendly. And people really are not used to seeing that. Some people are. It depends on the audience member. But um, it... Uh, I, I put both of the films... I don't try to necessarily explain the films... I just try to put them in context as to what 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 is going on because we really right now in our corporately funded and distributed uh, film situation, there's really not a um, uh, oh, there's no place for you. There. No, no, no. I wasn't going to say that. There is a place for me. I've been touring for 14 years. <laughs> right. Uh, Touche. No. Uh, the, um, the, uh, what I was going to say is there's not a, um, a, um, oh, I'm just forgetting the proper word for it. Uh, a, a per, like a, when you have a film programmer or somebody that is, um, programming a, uh, uh, an art uh, exhibition. There's a word for it, but I'm a curator. Yes. So the the the, the curation of film, uh, like I say, since sometime in the early '80s, has become more and more essentially corporately curated. So even even if you have a um, a film reviewer. Uh, say at the New York Times, or uh, maybe that's a bad example. Probably New York Times film reviewers are tend toward uh, being more genuinely uh, genuine cinephiles that that get a fair amount of exposure to different uh, things. And actually, to be fair, most really high end film critics at least came from being cinephiles. Mm-hmm. But uh, what tends toward happening, and is that the film curation ends up being about corporate friendliness. And, you know, even reviewers need to make a living. Mm-hmm. And if they're, if, they're, if they're consistently giving negative reviews about corporate fare, those reviews won't be quoted. Uh, they won't be in, in the reviews. You know, sure. And they and they would probably be less likely invited or um, asked to come to kind of the parties or the screenings, and uh, because who needs a bad review for their film and and right. have they, you know big corporate films have parties and they give food you know they want people to give them good reviews, so it it's a it's it's a way that that the culture ends up curating films in a corporate manner. So so a kind of a, for lack of a better word, a counterculture. I don't really like using that term, but something that was going on in the in the sixties and seventies, where there were more questioning kinds of films going on, and there were reviewers and, uh, like I say, um, curators that were looking to have this kind of uh, uh, community. Uh, And uh, right now, I do not know 
a curation that is going on in that realm. I do think there are, I know there are people that are making films and, and they do get seen. There are, there are some good art house uh, venues, but it's um, most of the art house venues are independently owned or, or not for profit organizations. And there's not necessarily a, um, a kind of a consensus or standard. There's a, a, a little bit of it. But, it, but in the 70s and 80s, 60s and 70s, there was a nationwide and even corporately uh, understood uh, questioning that was going on. And that isn't really happening on a nationwide level right now. But uh, anything could happen. Anything could change. Um and I forgot why I got onto that subject. <laughs> well, but in the uh, corporate world that uh, we sometimes get lost in, it does breed a hunger for another flavor of movie. And I don't movie- think I don't know that I don't know that that's true. No, I, um, no, because because you know I'm writing a book about propaganda right now, and and propaganda is is a form of education as well. Sure. Meaning that if 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 people are educated toward uh, appreciating, uh, let's say superhero movies, and and you know they're 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 comparing one superhero movie to the next superhero movie as to which one was had better acting or better writing, uh, better action, better what have you. And that, and that, and those are the films that the most money goes into. And those are the films that the most, um, payment goes to for the, 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 you know, highest paid actors, the highest paid writers, directors, etc. Uh, then, and then of course the, the, the reviewers go, go to that. And that kind of becomes what, for lack of a better word, high, high octane, this is where the attention goes. Sure. And yeah. so, more excited about whether it's you know a superhero A or superhero B movie, and um, then this other thing that's this kind of obscure thing. I, it's kind of like what the, the 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 culture becomes about. U.S. culture tends to being about competition and about. Mm-hmm. What what is the highest grossing movie? Who has seen the the latest movie that they can they can talk about at, at work or to their friends? And everybody kind of thinks it's neat that this person knew about this movie first, and they also saw the other big movie. Now, I'm not saying that's everybody, mm-hmm. but but it it tends toward being the norm. Mm-hmm. So so instead of a thirst for a different kind of movie, it becomes a thirst, like a competition for who knows about the thing that grossed the most. And is that so good? Or is, is it, is it as good as the other one that grossed the second amount? And, and, and so these other things that are like, you know, not really reviewed, not really talked about who's, who's going to, who cares about that? That that's what ends up being a, the, the attitude. I don't, I don't really think it's like people are going, you know, well, we have this superhero movie, this superhero movie. What about this movie about the guy with cerebral palsy? I, I mean, maybe, but I, 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 it does happen because I have been showing the film for so many years, but it, but it's more like what I tend toward thinking it is, is that there are people that are already interested in uh, unusual thing, but uh, but I, the, the only the only reason I'm saying it is because you said mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Th- those that corporate culture breeds uh, a question a, a hunger. Stuff. Yeah, I don't I don't I don't agree with that. I think the corporate culture breeds it educates or rather propagandizes mm-hmm. people into thinking that's the proper kind of movie and feeling they should be looking for. Uh, I think that the other stuff are, it's people that have somehow been educated in a different sense and it did not come from corporate um, entertainment or media. 
Well, certainly cultural taste has changed and been steered by corporate uh, culture. Absolutely. Um, And we're in a place right now where Rotten Tomatoes is key and box office dollars are what we all talk about on, you know, Monday morning rather than the quality of the films. But I do think there is uh, a response from some and probably that's what we're talking about is it's a it's a smaller number than the people who are going to Avengers. But you do have an audience because you have been touring with this for a long time. And I think your audience will hopefully breed other audiences and maybe there will be a response. Uh, that, well, that's the, that is that is the idea. What I do notice as I've toured around for, for the years, when I first, with what is it, when I first started talking, using the word propaganda in terms of U.S. entertainment, I could tell, that was in 2005, I could tell the audience was kind of like not, I mean, not every single person, but a majority, I could feel it in the United States. When I would start talking about that subject matter, people would be like genuinely kind of like, what the hell are you talking about? What do you sure. mean U.S. propaganda? Whereas if I go to Canada, <laughs> country, they knew exactly what I was talking mm-hmm. about in 2005. But there has been something in the, um, because of uh, the internet, uh, people have started to understand it. What I see that's happening, which I do think is very positive, is that there are people discussing propaganda in politics and news media. I do not see it being discussed really in uh, entertainment media still. Maybe there's starting to be a, a, a concept about it. Again, I've been working on this book for a long time, and that's really what the subject is. There's other things in it as well. Well, I mean, but uh, it's something I've not been able to get out of my mind basically since working on Back to the Future when I was 20 years old. Well, like it's I I think I think it can't. It's not something that can escape from your mind when you see it, right? Because once you once you see it, you cannot unsee it. You see it in everything that's around how, you. Once you see how it, yeah. Once you see how it, it functions, it's not it's not possible to see it any other way. Well, so then I guess this and is. It becomes, virtually ubiquitous it, it becomes in virtually every every single thing that's corporately funded or distributed there are exceptions there are exceptions but it's 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 very very rare well and i i think it becomes the air you breathe and you can't tell the difference in the air you breathe because it's the air you're breathing and and that's that's what you yeah. exist in um but then so i I agree very much that there are a group of people who are interested in exploring different ways of telling stories and what that says about us and different approaches to philosophy and art and entertainment. Um, and I agree that there are people who totally exist within blockbuster corporate entertainment and that's what they go to and they eat their popcorn and they love it. And I, you know, I mean, I, I think that's fine too, so long as you have a healthy dose of the other, but how do you begin to bridge the gap? And because I like you've been thinking about propaganda a lot, I, I find that that's a subject I'm fascinated with. But I'm also very fascinated by small cultures who become very interested in the way that things are done or expressed and how you build roads or bridges to other small cultures and how you push those values, because it is all programming. And I don't think that you can necessarily take somebody who's a hundred percent. I'm going to go watch the next Marvel movie, which is me. Like I, I love Marvel movies. I'll go do that. And then take that person who that's their whole cinematic experience and put them in something like, um, what's my favorite go-to for this? Like R100, which is a Japanese movie about BDSM and a guy who decides to embrace his suffering quite literally. And that's the life lesson that he learns. You can't go from Avengers and then watch R100. They're, they won't get it. I mean, and that's kind of what you were talking about before about, you know, what is it and how do I do that? How do we bridge that gap and how do we lay out those pavers so that they can, that they can expand their interests? I, 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 um, I don't, I don't know. I, I'm not sure if I, uh, think there is necessarily that gap. Um, hmm. 
I think my feeling has always been that if I, I'm not familiar with the particular reference of the film that you gave, sure. But uh, my feeling has always been, well, if the kind of budget that was put into advertising a, a large studio superhero type movie was put into uh, the Steve Stewart film. Oh, brother, you're preaching to the choir. That that would I. There's no question that the the movie would make a, a certain amount of money. I mean, it might not make as much money as the standard superhero film, but it certainly would make millions of dollars just by the fact that there were millions of dollars put into the um, put into the uh, the corporate uh, advertising of it. So it, the, the, the difficulty is, is that corporations have a, an agenda because they're subsidiaries to um, larger corporate entities that really they have an agenda. The agenda of a corporation is to continue uh, having the same kind of uh, powers that it enjoys Yes. In the early in the 1700s, when the U.S. first started, we're so used to corporations and the way they exist right now that we don't really understand that in the 1700s, when the U.S. began, the kind of corporations that we have were not legal. It, people had to get a permission at that time. I believe it was called a lock stock company, mm. and and they and and there was a limited amount of time that those uh, those early corporations were allowed to exist. They had to prove that they were going to uh, be beneficial to the the uh, culture, and then they had a specific thing that they were allowed to accomplish, and then uh, they were stopped because it was understood that these could be damaging things. The, the, then for various briberies in the 1800s, uh, it got to the point where now corporations legally are considered people, although they aren't because if a person hurts somebody else, they go to jail. Yep. Whereas a corporation, uh, as it exists now, really faces no uh, problem if, if they kill somebody. So they're, they're very dangerous entities. And 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 contemporary corporations ultimately they know this. They know that if people are educated and thoughtful and questioning, they will turn against the corporations and get rid of them in the way that they are. Because they're not they're I mean, I don't mean every single corporation. There's such a good thing as a good corporation. It just means a group of people that are getting together and doing something. And I'm sure there are, I know there are a number of those things that exist that are positive, but there's a number of them that exist that are not positive and they really should be taken apart. But because they're, um, because they're, they bribe legally bribe the politicians in the U S yep. uh, and the corporate entities that, own, that are the media systems are subsidiaries to those same corporations. They only want to fund and distribute entertainment that will make people keep feeling these things are okay. And anything that could really cause genuine questions, that's not going to be corporately funded or distributed. So it's, it's less about like bridging a gap uh, and more about probably it's a political aspect of simply just deconstructing the corporations, making, yeah. getting, getting the, the U.S. to actually be a functioning democracy, which is what we were taught in school that, mm. that the U.S. is, and it isn't. It's, it's something, there are many studies that show that the policies that are put in place uh, have nothing to do with people, uh, people's will, but everything to do with corporate will. So, and uh, that's the same thing that is happening in, in film. So, uh, yeah, it's, I would say it's, it's less about bridging a gap and more about a political <laughs> action of just uh, getting rid of cor cor corporate controls. Yeah, good luck to all of us. <laughs> but, you know, like, well, so uh, living as that, an artist... I, 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 don't, I, don't, I don't agree with that, though. Mm -hmm. You know, in the, in the early 1900s, there are waxing and wanings of control. 
you know, the the game Monopoly, the reason that became a popular game is because of the trust busting that happened in the early 1900s, and people were very aware, well aware of the the problems of monopolies. Now they don't call it monopolies anymore. They've, they've, there's different ways of things happening. Uh, I, I think uh, anytime there's any kind of genuine revolution, it happens when there's an awareness that there are more haves than have-nots, or rather more have-nots than haves. And at that point, uh, people do take control. And because of the Internet, there is more awareness going on. It's a finer thread than, than people might uh, imagine. And I have a feeling people are really getting pretty, pretty uh, close to that thread. Once that thread is broken, it, it is, I, 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 I'll bet something pretty drastic is going to happen to corporate control within the next, well, I'll say 100 years. Mm-hmm. But uh, some, it, there's, there's too many things that are really not, not properly going on in that area As for an, it to remain in the way it is. As an artist in America in 2019, do you consider yourself an optimist then? Um, I, I, I consider myself an optimistic person. I don't, I'm not a pessimist. But um, that's that's kind of more personal. Mm-hmm. As far as uh, humans and what is going to happen with human culture and uh, how humans are going to interact with each other and what what culture will be, I would predict pretty emphatically that certainly within the next two hundred years what we consider culture, what we're used to is not going to be recognizable. I do not think it's plausible for the amount of humans that are going to in the exponential, uh, uh, amount of uh, populace that's going to, to certainly, uh, continue. Uh, I don't, I don't see how the environmental, um, constraints that are apparent are going to be sustainable. I mean, humans are intelligent. They Things could get figured out. There could be inventions. But it seems pretty, pretty certainly evident that the way humans are dealing with the environment, that something relatively catastrophic is going to happen with certainly within the next 200 years. And what, what we're used to in terms of temperature and water and uh, sea level, and, uh, and, th- and that's not to speak of the possibilities of uh, extraterrestrial, and I don't mean um, uh, conscious extraterrestrial, I mean things like uh, comets or meteor mm-hmm. strikes or solar flares or magnetic shifts there are, there's a there's been many disasters that have, have hit, hit the earth or uh, volcano large volcanoes there's so many things that regardless of even if human beings were not tampering with uh, environmental elements there's so many internal aspects in the earth and external elements coming from the sun or outside of the, 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 in the remote parts of the solar system that could, could come into the earth, the likelihood that what homo sapiens are used to uh, is going to maintain seems pretty slim. And, and uh, uh, so whether that's optimistic or pessimistic, I just think it's realistic. It's uh, in it really looking at the the amounts of um, c- catastrophic um, situations, they, 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 there's more and more evidence of something happening about ten and twelve year, thousand years ago that ended the ice age that was pretty catastrophic, and that really isn't that long ago. Uh, I mean, it seems like a long time ago, but but it isn't really that long ago uh, in terms of true time. So, uh, 
I mean, I, I find it fascinating. I don't, I, I, the likelihood that it will happen while I'm alive, probably not. I probably, I get the sense that things will stay relatively stable. Maybe when I'm hitting my oldest age, when I die at 130, or however, <laughs> God, however really. old I am, I, I think by that time, there. By by my age of 130, I do think there's going to be some fairly strong shifts in in culture. I I would think it would be fairly different from 1964 when I was born to uh, whatever the 130 years later is. But uh, it's interesting. I mean, I, I mean, I think I think humans will survive. It just depends on how many will survive. How many will will perish? I I could foresee. I mean, people have always said that you know there's going to be a gigantic disaster, uh, and it doesn't always come true. But I I think in the long run, the likelihood of some kind of human of gig, truly catastrophic disasters seems pretty pretty likely. Seems pretty likely. Almost that Yeah, yeah. Well, certainly we know the sun will expand, but yeah. that off the earth. But that's that's literally, uh, I believe, billions of years from now. So, well, time there, keeps on ticking. That one. Yeah, I, 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 I just, I want to say, I, I, I genuinely love. I think the left and right limits of this conversation that we've established from uh, a single individual, you know, living their own personal experience and trying to make sense of their their own personal tragedies and challenges, all the way to the heat death of the sun and, uh, the end of the human race. I, I just, I, I think it's, uh, very, uh, it's, it's very hard to underestimate the effect of culture and the way that people engage with it and how lasting those things are. It seems like in the moment, but I think ultimately how, uh, just malleable they become. If you look at them with the right perspective of time, um, I have just one other question that I'd really like to get into because I think we've gone on uh, for about 40 minutes now, uh, which is great, uh, but I don't want to take up too much of your time. Uh, you know, one of the things that we're very fascinated with, um, we've been very blessed to interview uh, a number of filmmakers on this podcast, the majority of them, you know, independent filmmakers. Uh, so, you know, I'm certain through your own experience, how challenging it is to make a movie and have plans come together as you're executing them. And I think that what we found is a common thread that I certainly know in my own personal life is that when you hit a challenge, it's very easy to feel very low when you're personally invested in the project that you're working on. And so one of the things that we like to ask all our guests are, uh, in terms of this project and your experience with this movie, is there one single experience that you look back on that keeps you motivated to pursue closing out the trilogy? Um, well, I, I, at this moment, uh, I'm, I'm not so, I'm not as motivated to closing out the trilogy as I am to be, um, uh, continuing the film I'm working on right now, which is right. not part three of the trilogy. This uh, is the, the I, one I, Right, that's not a continuation of the trilogy. I I will I do want to get back to the trilogy, but uh, I've been working. Uh, you know, I started shooting What Is in 1996, so this is actually 22 years after uh, starting the trilogy. Uh, actually, 23 years. Uh, that's a very very long time. It is uh, to be dealing with uh, a kind of one thematic element. I have a number of other films that I want to uh, deal with that have different thematic aspects to them, and then at a certain point go go back to uh, completing the trilogy. Uh, so yeah, I, I'm not I, I I'm motivated to complete the trilogy, but not uh, that's not my main motivation right currently. What 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 does keep you motivated? Well, uh, what recharges your creative luckily, batteries, I guess? Well, well, luckily, uh, 
I've been doing it long enough, uh, and and it is what my the nor the norm my normal mode of existence happily is being involved in uh, creative processes that I enjoy doing. Mm. So it I, I'm glad to say that it is a uh, what I am used to doing, and uh, I like doing it. Uh, so that is a that's a very fortunate thing. I was lucky to know that feel at a very young age that being involved in uh, the entertainment industry would be something that I could do professionally. I felt I could do it professionally. And as time went on, particularly in my my uh, mid-teens, I really started uh, uh, becoming a, a cinephile. I, I started really enjoying that mode, that film, film and filmmaking and uh, that particular, uh, that particular craft. And, uh, you know, now that I've been making my own films, uh, as well as acting in other people's productions, uh, I, I, I very much enjoy it. Even if it takes me a long time and there are difficulties, I, I enjoy those aspects of doing those things. So it's just, uh, like I say, it's fortunate to be, uh, continuing to do things that I enjoy doing as opposed to it being something that I necessarily need to find motivation it just seems to me more like uh, this is what I do, which I'm glad of. I'm, I'm grateful for that. Well, i I think it's um, I think it's always very nice to structure your life and be able to structure your life to fulfill something that uh, lets you put a roof over your head, but also fulfills you personally and, and artistically. So I'm, I'm, I'm very happy yeah. that you've been able to find that. I think that's a wonderful thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I, I guess, uh, what I wanted to get into is then speaking of the trilogy, um, you have Crispin Hellion Glover's big slideshow at the Chattanooga film festival on Friday, uh, this Friday from seven 30 to 10 30. And you're going to have a live performance along with it, with a Q and a, you're going to show, uh, the movie, um, if folks can't make it, well, no, let's do this. If folks want to go out to the Chattanooga Film Festival, uh, how can they go out and just get single passes to your show? Do they need to get uh, badges for the film? Do you know how that works? You know, I I don't know how that works. I I I, do. I don't have. Brad is looking at me right now, right saying, right. "I know the answer I to this question, Billy." Okay, <laughs> you can get individual tickets. They're twenty five dollars. <laughs> Great, thank you, Brad. Brad is with the details. I'm with the feelings <laughs> okay. and the the philosophies. Okay. But uh, for those that are unable to make it to the Chattanooga Film Festival, where can uh, people find you next? How can they seek out your 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 films um, and, best, and get in touch uh, with you? The best way is to sign up for the newsletter on crispinglover.com. It will email people when I'm where with what shows and films. And, you know, I, it's not, it's, it's organic in the way that it happens. Uh, this is kind of the last show of a series of shows I just had in uh, New York, Phoenix, Austin, uh, and uh, Raleigh. Oh, wow. And then Chattanooga. But, uh, I think I don't have anything set right now, but I believe I may be doing some more touring uh, this year. Uh, I generally try to tour at least once a year. It depends on the year. Last year I toured, I think the least I've toured since I started touring in 2005. Uh, I only had one show in uh, Copenhagen, but that was also mm -hmm. because I, I was uh, a little unclear as to the schedule uh, working on American Gods, right. and I was working on that for uh, a fair amount of, of uh, last year. So I did I did much less touring than I, I re regularly do, but uh, uh, I do like touring, and it, I, I try to incorporate it into uh, my schedule, whether I'm acting in uh, films or working on American God or gods or, or, or what have you. 
But, uh, uh, yeah, that's the best way, signing up for the newsletter on com, and then emails anybody that signs up for that newsletter as to when and where I'll be where. Uh, a less um, specific way of doing it is I have the various social media uh, outlets of uh, an official Crispin Hellion Glover Facebook page and then just a Crispin Hellion Glover Facebook page, both of those on Facebook. I have a Crispin Hellion Glover in- Instagram and a Crispin Glover Twitter. So those are the social media aspects I use. Well, thank you, Crispin, for joining us today uh, on the podcast. We really appreciate it. Uh, I am motivated by what you have been offering today, and I am so excited to see the film finally at the Chattanooga Film Festival and to see your whole presentation. Yeah, please come up and say hello. I'm I'm proud of the the, the live show and the books and, and, and the film. So uh, I look forward to seeing you and seeing everybody at the show. All right. We'll see you then. Thank you. All right. Thanks a lot. Have a great night. Bye-bye. You too. Bye. Bye. And we're back. What? Yeah, that's great. <laughs> oh, I, I am so appreciative to Crispin Glover for taking the time to chat with us and for supplying answers that, one, I was not expecting, but also, two extremely thoughtful yeah. and giving. I don't. I don't think that there was any part of that conversation, which, as I said at the beginning, went pretty far from the left to the right extremes of it. I think it's all worthwhile, and I think that there's a lot of thought and passion that's gone into that. I, this is a really great conversation. Listening to him speak, I had one thought, and that was Crispin Glover and Billy Das are of one mind. <laughs> I like of all the like. That that was really the thing that I, I if you'd said when you wake up this morning, uh, you're gonna be talking with Crispin Glover. Okay, fine. And you're gonna find out that you guys are pretty close to sharing a brain here. <laughs> like he's speaking my language. He really, man. really was. Yeah, he really was. So yeah, that uh, I hope I hope everyone out there in it mod land enjoyed the conversation as much as we did. Uh, I think it is one of the best interviews that we've done here on the show not to knock our past guests but this was just something truly special for brad personally i i agree i i I feel similarly i it's funny because i i think you know all of these conversations are always fascinating to me and they're always immediately my favorite chat because like they're so personal and he's so giving with it with his thoughts and feelings behind what's going on in in his art yeah i think that's great yeah yeah all right, and there you have it. Uh, I think we'll go ahead and wrap this episode up. This is uh, another episode in the can, which is an exciting thing to say. I'm sorry, I'm taking my hosting You're duties. Enjoying this. Like, yes, I, look, I don't I, like it. No, I do. I'm so full of emotion right now, and I don't know where to put it. Um, it you know, it, I was so nervous talking to Crispin <laughs> Glover that I could not start the conversation off, and so I asked Billy to start the conversation <laughs> off with. The interview, as you heard already, and that is why Billy is the host today. It is. It is. I I couldn't take it. I can be a host. Uh, I I just, I I wasn't expecting that. And uh, you're a great host, Billy. Crispin (laughs) Glover is an even better guest. I should not have been nervous. But it's one of those things where, you know, you grow up with this guy. He's in Back to the Future. He's in Willard. He's in Charlie's Angels. You know, you, you he's somebody that I obsessed over in my youth, and he has grown into this amazing mind, right? Check out his music. Check out what he is doing with his own directorial efforts. He he rejected the system where he came up from. He is a true rebel, and I was very anxious to talk to him. But I, I shouldn't have been. Because obviously a very nice, warm, and welcoming individual. And knowledgeable. And knowledgeable. This is great. So I am worried about that heat death, though. Uh, well, don't worry. You you won't be around for it. I got some time? Yeah, I think you'll be okay. And we'll probably skate by on that one. I don't know about the comet thing. Can't promise anything on that. But uh, we're going to be okay on account of the sun. That's going to go on just fine for our life. Uh, So... If you haven't signed up already, uh, go to crispinglover.com, sign up for his newsletter. I really strongly encourage you to do it. I know that that's definitely the first thing I'm looking forward to doing once we get to Chattanooga. Um, If you are an ITMOD listener and you're in the Northern Virginia area, folks, Chattanooga is only a nine-hour drive. Brad and I are doing it, and if we can do it, you can too. 
Uh, Airbnbs are super cheap. The tickets are super affordable. Uh, it is the most fun that you could have at a film festival that is populated half by the filmmakers themselves. Uh, so go out, meet the people making the movies that you're watching, have conversations with them, have a party. It's fun. All right. Uh, now, uh, let's see. Brad, where can people find you on the social medias? Oh, I can be found on all social medias, at MouthDork. But you might also want to check out our other dorks, Brian Young. Right. He's at the Turtle Dork. At the Turtle Dork on Twitter. At the Turtle Dork one on Instagram. At Brian Young on Facebook. And Brian B. Young uh, for his uh, personal Facebook. Yeah, don't I forget. Don't, no, that, uh. that's that's private. <laughs> don't friend him. Don't be weird. But Darren Smith would probably accept your friend request on his Facebook page for sure. He's at the Disco Dork on Twitter and Instagram as well. My wife Lisa Gullickson, the wife dork, is on Instagram and Twitter at Sidewalk Siren. Uh, and then I am Billy Das, the indie dork. You can find me at WB Das on Twitter, Instagram, and Letterboxd. Uh, and you can also find me with my daughter uh, doing Bill and Claire's Excellent Adventures, where we expand her cinematic horizons. Uh, you can find that on Apple Podcasts. Please subscribe, like, drop us a five-star review if you listen to an episode. We sure could use it. And stick around at Mod Chatcast, because not only will we be bringing you more conversations from the Chattanooga Film Festival, next Wednesday, coming right around the corner, is our conversation with Vicky Flasick from Fiddlin, the producer yes. of that documentary, plus subjects Presley Barker and Wayne Henderson. Mm. And if you don't know those names right now, you're sure going to learn them really soon. And, and be sure to stick around all the way through to the end, because the stinger for that might be a bit of a live performance from Presley Barker and Wayne Henderson. Look so, up Wayne Henderson online. Your mind will be blown. The dude's a legend. It's amazing. All right. And that'll do it for us this time. Until next time. Take care. Visions are worth fighting for. Why spend your life making someone else's dreams 